Welcome to the Authentic Church Podcast with Jeff and Fawn Peterson in Orange County, California, where our mission is simply to love God, love people, and live authentic. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks for your warm welcome and your hospitality on this. For my wife, Cindy, and I, who's Cindy sitting right here on the front row as well, we've got you about 10 years. We've been married 30 years, and uh, so... We'll just, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll just keep going from there. Y'all, it's really a pleasure to be able to meet y'all and to be able to be here today. Uh, I don't get the opportunity to be able to travel much outside of my own state. Obviously, I travel around Oklahoma, and I'm back and forth to Washington, D.C. Uh, every week and the responsibilities that I have here, but it's really an honor to be able to be here. Uh, I was in the area having some other meetings, was invited to be able to come here and to be able to be a part of this time together. So I want to be able to bring a word, but I want to be able to also tell you a story somewhat. You have no idea what God has in store in the days ahead. You may think you do. You have no idea. But I do know that each day as we follow God, he prepares us for the next day. And that whatever God has you doing right now, you will understand 10 years from now why God had you walk through that season in that place at that time because his plan is perfect and he has a bigger mission and a vision for what is going to happen in your life in the days ahead and to be able to use you in that. Now, again, I meet people all the time going, yeah, that's true for other people. No, it's true for you. And you have no idea what that spot in that place may be, but God is big enough, smart enough, powerful enough to be able to see all things as he stands outside of time and looks into our world and engages with us at every moment. He sees the beginning and the end as if it's exactly the same palette and understands the end and the future the same. And though we're living linear, he is not living linear. And he has a purpose and a plan for us in this. So I want to walk you through a story a little bit, and I want to be able to walk you through it, an Old Testament story to be able to get you some context of what I mean by this. For us, when we started following after Jesus, uh, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old, and I began the journey there. And I would, understand, I would tell you, as an eight-year-old, at that time I was sitting in church in the balcony, and my mom later told me we sat in the balcony because I got in trouble so much in church that that was easier to pull me out of than it was out of the ground floor, okay? So, uh, so I sit up in the balcony, I'm listening in one Sunday, and in my eight-year-old self, as much as I could understand, I understood this, there is a God and I don't know him. That's how simple it started for me. And I couldn't shake that one reality. God is real. I don't know him. I know about him, and I've met people that know him. I don't know him. So if you're a person that came here today because somebody invited you or you wandered in or your life's completely messed up, and you walked in and said, this is so bad, I need God. Let me just tell you, this is so good, you need God. Okay? So you are here today as the pastor mentioned before, and a purpose and a plan. And there is a reason that you're here. And it could be that you were just like me when I was eight years old sitting in church and that sudden realization, I don't really know God, I know about him. I don't know him. And it's time to be able to take the next step. So this Old Testament story I want to tell you, I want to set some context on this. How many of you love history? How many of you can't stand history? Okay, come on. I get it, I get it. Thanks for being honest. This is authentic. Okay, so um, the the... I, I'm a history guy, okay, for my wife and I, when we go to a museum, this is how it goes. We walk up to the next display, I start reading everything on the display to get every word, and I turn around and look, and she is not there. 
Okay, she and our youngest daughter have found a bench because they've done the entire room where my oldest daughter and I are still working on the first exhibit. Okay, anybody get it? Okay, so I love to be able to get into the history. When you look at the Old Testament, the history of what God has done through time and how he's engaged and how he's moving people, it's so fascinating to be able to see God interact with different cultures, different times, and to be able to meet them where they were at that time. And we sometimes look back on that culture and go, that's so weird. I was like, okay, if they looked at California right now, they would go, that's so weird. Okay, because, because you, we won't get each other in those cultures, but what's fascinating is God met them where they were and was taking them somewhere in that. So quick, short history on this for those of you that enjoy history, for those of you that don't, stick with me for a second, okay? So when, when we look at the movement of God and what happened through the Old Testament, the Old Testament's really a thread of how God was moving. And as he's moving and we see like the, uh, the, the, this family of Abraham, and as they're growing up, they became powerful. They end up over in Egypt because of a famine. They end up being enslaved in that time period. That's the whole time of Joseph and all that dialogue that happens there. They come out and remember Moses, the guy looks like Charlton Heston. He comes out and says, let my people go, you know, that whole thing. And so they, they come out of Egypt and they come into the promised land. And this Israel we now know today is Israel. It's named Israel because one of the family members, his name was Israel. And so his name was Jacob. He was renamed Israel. And the whole country, the whole people is called Israel or Hebrews. You'll hear that term sometimes. They're Hebrews. They're Israelites. They're Jews. And so they come out of Egypt. They land in this land, this promised land, which God said, I've set aside for you. And I have a special reason because I'm going to display myself to the whole world through this place. It's really a fascinating story. It's through a place and through the people. And so he says, this is my footstool. I'm going to display myself to this place through these people. So we watch the Israelites. They're trying to figure out how to be able to walk with God. Initially, they've got no functioning government and things. It's time of the the judges, you'll hear. It's kind of like they have leaders that just rise up over different times. It's a really ugly, awful period in Jewish history when you look at it. And then it moves into the time of the kings. And you've got all these kings. You've got Saul, you've got David, you've got Solomon. And it keeps going through that time period. And they had this, uh, what's interesting is we lose track of it sometimes, but they had a civil war after Solomon. There was only three kings in a row that had a united kingdom. It was, it was Saul, it was David, and then it was Solomon. And, and Solomon, his son, his name is Rehoboam, his son was such a bad leader at the very beginning that the whole kingdom divides. And the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And so sometimes when you're reading through the Bible, talk about Israel did this, that's because it's post-civil war. There was a civil war among the 12 tribes. We, we just lose track of that part of that history. They split off into two nations side by side, both brothers. Sometimes they do things together. Sometimes they're at each other. But that's the nature of two nations then side by side, this one kingdom. So the northern kingdom gets beat up by the Assyrians in 722. It's a tough neighborhood, by the way, that they live in. So the Assyrians come down, beat up Israel, the 10 northern tribes, but they come to Jerusalem and there's this belief that God's gonna always protect Jerusalem. And it makes it even larger because the Syria gets all the way to Jerusalem, but they don't take Jerusalem. They leave out. I told you it's a tough neighborhood. The Babylonians then beat up the Assyrians. Okay, they take over everything the Assyrians had, including the northern kingdom. And then they come down into the southern kingdom. Well, they get up to Jerusalem and all the people in Jerusalem believe, you know, God will never let this fall. And the Babylonians surround it. And guess what happens? Jerusalem falls. The Babylonians sweep through. It's 586 B.C. 
They sweep right through. Now, it's interesting. There are a whole group of prophets, and we can read a lot of the prophets there during that time period. We're standing up and saying, you understand what's happening. All this judgment's coming on us because we're so far from God. We've rejected God, and we're facing the consequences. God told us centuries ago, if you'll walk with me, this is what it's going to be like. If you reject me, this is what it's going to be like. And we've rejected God, and so we're facing judgment. And the people are like, oh, no, oh, no. We've got the name, and all we need is the name. We don't have to actually live the life. And so the Babylonians come, wipe them out, and they go into exile. Now, that's the time like Daniel... Hananiah, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that. Okay, that's that time period. They go off into captivity, 586 B.C. They're there for 150 years. Did I tell you it's a tough neighborhood? The Medes and the Persians come and beat up the Babylonians. And so the Medes and the Persians beat up the Babylonians. They take the Babylonian stuff as well as the Assyrian stuff that they had also taken, and they've got the whole region. And now there's this guy, his name is Nehemiah, who's growing up in captivity, and he's grown up in captivity. It's been 150 years since they were a nation over there, but all the Jews that live in captivity, first under the Babylonians, then under the Medes and the Persians, are trying to figure out how to be able to get their faith back together and to say, how do we walk with God in such a foreign land? How do we do that? So that's where we pick up the story. You got it? Okay, that's quick history. Okay, for you non-history people, I hurried. For all you history people that you're like, there's a lot more there. Yeah, there is, okay? <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to help out the other folks, but that, 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 that's kind of the history in the context. But I want you to be able to get that because sometimes we read books of the Bible and we try to figure out where does that fit into the context. This is where it fits, and I think it's important to be able to get the story of it. So if you've got your Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter one. If you've got your phone, you can just pull it up. It's easier. I would tell you, this is a personal thing for me, personally. I wish the Bible was either organized alphabetically or chronologically. <laughs> One or the other would be fine, okay? But it's not, okay? So the book of Nehemiah, which is like towards the end of Old Testament time, is actually before the book of Psalms. You're like, that just shouldn't be, okay? But it was set up by, by sections of history and by poetry and by prophets, so it's set up in like, bigger books, if you, if you figured up like the first five books of Moses, the Torah, that are there at the beginning, and then they set it up in big blocks. It's in the history block is why it's in that one, but there you go. Anyway, Nehemiah chapter one, I gave you enough time to be able to find it. I'm going to read the whole first chapter because I think the story is important, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the story from there. So Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. Anybody's dad named Hekeliah? That'd be a, I just got to tell you, person, that'd be a tough house to grow up in. Did it just seem like it? Oh, your dad's Hekeliah. Oof. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I don't know the man, so I, don't, I, I guess I can't say that. It says, now, it happened in the month of Chislev that their calendar's different than ours. In the 20th year, by the, by the way, they counted years by the, the year of the, the king. Okay, so we'll get that later. So it's the 20th year of the king. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Okay, so let me stop the story. Nehemiah is a slave. We'll pick that up. He's a slave living under the Medes and the Persians. His brother Hanani, who's probably also a slave as well, he just came back from Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem's a pretty long journey for them to be able to get there. He's now come back. We don't know what Hannah and I was doing, but he got to go back to Jerusalem. Now, there was some back and forth because under this king, he was allowing some folks to be able to head back to Jerusalem if you were Jewish to be able to go back because it was destroyed and devastated. It was like, yeah, you can go back and live there. That's under my kingdom as well. So there was some of that that happens. But in all likelihood, Hannah and I's probably somebody that was working for the troops in that area and was a slave carrying stuff, Okay. So he comes back, he sees his brother Nehemiah, and here's the conversation. Nehemiah catches him and basically says, what's it like there? So he says this. Uh, He says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had uh, survived the exile. They had still lived because there were some that still lived in that area. And he said, I asked about Jerusalem. So he's asking about two things. Tell me about the people. Tell me about the place. What's the place like? What are the people like? So here's Hannah and I's response. And he said to me, The remnant, that's the people that are there, the remnant, those in the providence who had survived the exile, they're in trouble and shame. In other words, it's messed up. It's it's not good for them at all. They're in trouble, they're living in shame. The walls of Jerusalem, they're broken down and the gates are destroyed with fire. And then Hanani walks off. So basically, Nehemiah catches him and he says, what's it like there? This is where like our grandparents' grandparents lived. What's it like there? And Hannah and I responds back, oh, it stinks. It stinks to be them, and it stinks to be there, okay? Because the people are living in disgrace. The walls are all burned down, the gates are down. They're totally exposed. Every random rampage you're coming through there can just take them out. They're totally vulnerable. And then Hannah and I walks off. Nehemiah, verse four, he says, Nehemiah says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now catch this. Two guys. One guy's seen it. And he walks up to his brother and he says, stinks to be them. What's for lunch? And he's gone, you know, and walks away. Nehemiah hears the story and says, oh God, what do I do about this? We'll come back to that. He says, then he stops and he prays after many days. Here's like the synopsis of his prayer. He says, and I prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, his promise, who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and who keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. In other words, yeah, we messed up. That was us, that wasn't somebody else. It's not somebody else's fault, it's ours. We did that. And he says this, he gets personal, even I and my father's house have sinned. It wasn't somebody else, it wasn't somebody I know, it was me. We acted corruptly against you. We didn't keep your commands, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, again, he's living under the Medes and the Persians' rules. Who had beat up the Babylonians. It wouldn't be hard for him to say, hey, God, we didn't get it right, but seriously, the Babylonians? Okay, we got like 10% right, they got 0%, okay? So he could have said, yeah, 
we messed up, but not as bad as them. How come we're under them? But he didn't. He stopped and he said, doesn't matter what the rest of the culture's doing. Doesn't matter where everybody else is. What did I do to follow God? What did I do? Then he says this, remember, by the way, you, you never have to pray to God the word remember. He does, okay? But it, it's nice of him to say this. He says to God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses when you said, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And by the way, the NIV, I love the NIV translation of this, is even if you're at the farthest horizon, I'll find you there. Oh, that's good for me, sorry. He said this, he said, there are your servants, your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I'll tell you the rest of that in a second. And then he says, as a parenthetical note, by the way, I was just a cupbearer to the king. Okay, my job was to like when the king wanted to drink wine, I would like bring the cup to him, taste it first to make sure no one is gonna poison him. And then if I didn't die, the cup, then the key would go, okay, it's okay, I can drink it. Okay, that's not a great job. <laughs> there is no retirement plan in this job, okay? <laughs> that, and, and some people said, you know, Nehemiah was a leader, he was next to the king. He's an expendable slave, okay? That's really what he is. He's somebody they at least trusted to get close enough to the king. He wouldn't be carrying a dagger with him when he walked up with a wine cup. That's about as much as they trusted him. But he's expendable. They've got another guy waiting in the wings to see if he gets poisoned. They can just fill it in with the next guy, okay? But he's saying, this is who I am. I'm just, I'm just a guy. Just, just a guy. There's nothing special about him. He's just, I'm, just a, I'm just a cup bearer to the king. That's all it was but God had placed me in that spot. And let me talk you through the rest of the story of what happens. Because he says, God, it, I've been praying for all this time. And it's clear from the rest of the passage, he's been praying and asking God, tell me what to do. What is it I do with this? Jerusalem's in shambles. I know you, that grieves you. What do I do about this? Well, God gives him a vision to say, Ask the king if you can go and make it right. Now, remember, he just reminded everybody, I'm just a cupbearer. <laughs> okay, I get to see the king every once in a while. In fact, it says in the very next verse, a couple of months later, I was around the king. It's not like he's with him every day. A couple of months later, he's with the king, and the king calls to be able to have wine, and he says he brings the cup to him, but this day, he was sad. This was his crazy plan, okay? His crazy plan is that he's gonna be sad in front of the king, and if the king says to him, why are you sad? He'll take that as a sign from God. What are the chances that the king's gonna notice his expendable slave and go, hey, you feeling all right? Okay, not gonna happen. This is his crazy plan. Okay, so his crazy plan is, I'm gonna be sad in front of the king. If the king says, what's wrong with you? I'm gonna say, I'm sad because where my grandparents are buried is still in disgrace and I'd like to go fix it. 
What are the chances this plan's going to work? Okay, so a couple of months later, he gets called in. He takes the cup into the king. He sat in front of the king. The king looks at him and says, you've never been sad in my presence before. Why are you sad today? I love it in chapter two, you can get a chance to read the story. It's a great story. If you get time this afternoon, read the whole book. It's not long because it's a fantastic story about leaders and about following God. He, he, it says he pauses for a minute and he prays. It's kind of like, uh-oh, God's answering my prayer. Now I've got to actually do this. So it says he pauses for a moment and prays what I call a gulp prayer of, oh God, help me say the next word. And he says, how can I be happy when the place where my grandparents were buried is in disgrace? And he pauses, like, oh, I hope this works. And the king responds back to him, what do you want? And he says, I'd like to go to Jerusalem. I'd like to rebuild the walls. I'd like a letter to be able to cut down part of your forest so I can get trees to rebuild the gates. And it's pretty dangerous on the trip, so could you send some like military with me so I don't get killed on the way? King looks at him and says, all right, when are you coming back? And he names the date. By the way, at the end of the story, Nehemiah goes, rebuilds the city, and I'll tell you that story in a second, but at the end of the story, he's back to being cupbearer to the king again. He's back to being a slave. Because the king's like, all right, I'll let you do that, but you gotta come back, because you're still my slave. So the, this crazy thing, the king allows him to be able to go. He leaves out, he gets to Jerusalem, he quietly kind of marches around Jerusalem at night to check out all the walls, and what he finds out is, yeah, his brother was right. The people are living in disgrace. The walls are down, the gates are down. They're totally exposed to the people. So after he's been there three days, he marches around the city, checking out all the stuff late at night, and then the next morning, he gathers the leaders together, and he says to them, this place is messed up. And they're like, yeah, we know we live here, okay? <laughs> 150 years, families had lived in the destroyed Jerusalem ruins, 150 years. And he says, here's what I want everyone to do. I want everyone to be able to work on the section of the wall next to your house. Just take that little section. They have lived in the ruins of Jerusalem for 150 years. They had done enough to build their house, but not to restore the city. So they started working on the wall next to their house. Brace yourself. In two months' time period, two months, they rebuild the city walls that have been down 150 years in two months because everyone was like, well, it's, the project's too big. It's too big. It's too big. It can never get done. He's like, stop. Work on the section next to your house. Just work on that spot. And each of them start working on that spot, and in two months, they rebuild the walls. Now, let me take this home for us. When I meet people that talk about our country and our communities, I find they're one of two people. They'll start complaining to me about what's happening in culture, and by the time we're done, I can tell whether they're Nehemiah or whether they're Hanani. 
because both of them are going to complain about what's going on, but one of them's going to walk away and say, yeah, it stinks. What's for lunch? And they just walk away like they've got no responsibility. That's Hanani, who saw the problems and did nothing about it. Not even prayed about it. We have no evidence Hanani even prayed about this. He just saw the issues and said, that's terrible. And then there's Nehemiah, who just heard about the issues. And God cut him to the quick, and he said, that's really messed up. What do I need to do about it? Which one are you? In the culture we live in, in the families that we live in, we could all sit around. If we were just sitting there at lunch today talking, we could all talk about all kinds of issues with our families, with our communities, with our neighborhoods, with everything else. You can't do everything, but what are you doing? What has God called you to do? I, I, I tell people most often when, when they're thinking, I don't know what to do on it, I was like, well, what do you complain about the most? <laughs> Whatever you complain about the most, that's probably your rubble, okay? That's the stone you stumble over all the time. And instead of just stumbling over that stone all the time, why don't you pick it up, okay? Why don't you actually pick that thing up that's next to your house and start working on that and to say, this is what grieves me the most, so maybe this is what God has given a heart for me on. Because somebody else you talk to may not be grieved about that issue. It may be something totally different because God gave them a heart for that and you a heart for this other thing. What is it that God has called you specifically to do? Leaders don't just see the problem. They ask God, what do you want me to do about this? Second thing with this. When Nehemiah prays, he prays and says, God, I, I remember what you said. And God, I'm asking you to remember, but I really know you remember. God, I remember what you said to Moses. You said if we obey, you're gonna walk with us and you're gonna help us with this. If we disobey, we're gonna face consequences. I'm facing consequences in my life. Everybody I'm around is facing consequences and it's not because of somebody else's problem, I did it. And he confesses it. And he doesn't try to say the Babylonians are worse than me, so why am I getting this consequence and they seem to be getting off scot-free. He just says, it's me. I'm facing consequences in my life because of decisions I made, I did it. But God, you said that if I would repent, even if I was at the farthest horizon away from you, you'd forgive me. I have no idea where you are with God. There's no way I could know. But I meet people all the time that say, you have no idea the dumb stuff I've done in my life. I'm at the farthest horizon from God. And I look at them and say, I know a God who reaches to the farthest horizon and says, if you will repent, he'll take you back. I meet people all the time and say, I come to church because my wife or my husband wants me to come or it's good for my kids, but it's not good for me. I, I, I'm so messed up. I just do this for them, but I'm, I've, I've got no hope for me anymore. You're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Nehemiah says, I messed up. My family messed up. Everybody I know messed up. 
and we walked away from you. And we're a long way from you. But I remember you said, no matter how far we wandered away, if we would repent, you would take us back. Do you want to come back? Because he will take you back. Do you want to come back? Nehemiah had to get to a spot where he said, everything I see is messed up, including me. And before I go fix them, God, would you fix me? I don't know what God is calling you to. But I do know how he loves us. Do you want to come back? Listen. There's a lot that's going on in this story. And there's a lot of detail that's here that when I look at it, there's all this conversation about is the nation too far gone? Are individuals too far gone? Is there a way to be able to come home and all of it? But what I find is a faithful God who walks them through a very difficult season and they did not forget how faithful God really was in this process. I don't know how you read scripture. I, I, I read scripture through, a, in the mornings I read through the Psalms. And then in the evening I do other scripture reading on it. The Psalms are good for me, quite frankly, uh, because most of the Psalms start with how faithful God is, but here's what's going on in real life all around me. And then it ends with a reminder of how faithful God is. Uh, I, I'm not a big poetry reader. I don't know if some of you are big poetry readers, but reading through the Psalms is really reading through Hebrew poetry. So lots of symbolism, lots of beauty in it, but it's always a reminder every day on this. This morning when I was reading through Psalm 79, uh, it's the 79th day today, by the way, if you need that trivia. Uh, so, uh, so I'm reading through uh, Psalm 79 this morning, and it was funny to me thinking about what I was going to talk about today, that Psalm 79 is what's called a post-exilic Psalm. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a psalm after that was written, a song that was written after the Jews had been driven out into exile. It's like their whole world had fallen apart. But at the end of it, it, it's writing and saying, God, this happened and this happened and this happened. But at the end of it, they say again, but God, you're faithful. You haven't forgotten us. And even when their world was in shambles, just like Nehemiah is still saying, God, you're faithful. Here are my two questions for you, and it's going to be blunt. Are you Hanani or Nehemiah? Which one are you? Because I know you see the problems. Everybody does. Are you Hanani or Nehemiah? Number two, I don't know where you are with God. But even if you're at the farthest horizon, if you'll come home, he'll take you. Are you willing to right here in this authentic place to say, God, I'm the one that's messed up and I'm fully aware other people have messed up more. That's not my problem. I messed up. God, would you forgive me 
and give me the chance to start over again. If you've never come to Christ, you've never had that moment like I did when I was an eight-year-old punk red-headed kid, if you've never had that moment to be able to say, God, I need to start a relationship with you, this would be an amazing day to do that. To be able to say, God, I don't understand everything about all this stuff, but I do know I don't know you. You ready for that? Why don't you bow your heads? I'm going to give you time to think. Just you and God. Just you and God. I want you to think about those two questions I just dropped. Which one are you, Hananiah or Nehemiah? Which one do you want to be? Which one are you? Which one do you want to be? Now, it's a risk to be Nehemiah. It was a lot cooler and safer to be Hananiah. Hananiah could just tell the story. Which one do you want to be? There's nothing special about Nehemiah. He's just slave cupbearer. But he prayed and asked God to use him. And God did. Who do you want to be? Number two, how far are you from God? Not the person next to you. How far are you from God? Do you want to come home? Are you willing to admit to God, I messed up even this week? Would you forgive me and bring me back from the farthest horizon? If you've never come to know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something crazy and bold right now. I'm going to ask you right there where you are, no matter where you are emotionally, financially, where it doesn't matter. I'm going to ask you right there to be able to say, God, would you forgive my sin? Would you wipe my ledger clean and help me know how to follow you? It's a very simple prayer, but it's the beginning point of a relationship with God. You're separated from God because of your sin. So was I. Our sin separates us from God. He's holy, we're not. The only way to be restored to that relationship is for us to be forgiven and he takes us in and says, I will forgive you, just ask. Come walk with me, I'll show you a better way. Are you willing to do that this morning? To be able to say, God, I know I have sin in my life. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life and take control? Help me know how to follow you, Jesus, because I'm gonna mess this up. Help me know how to follow you. time to be able to worship and take the next step with God. There's two things that I would say. When I make decisions with God, I, I can do two things. I can keep it private so in case I mess up later, no one knows. <laughs> or, or when I come to realizations with God, I can turn to somebody I know and trust and say, I think God just said this to me. 
and I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm going to tell you because I, I think it's important. That's living in community. That's actually being together and walking with God and learn how to walk with God when somebody else knows what God's doing in your heart as well. So my encouragement to you right now, we're going to sing some. These steps will be open to pray. Is that legal to pray in California up on steps? Is that, is that good? Okay, we're still good. These steps will be open to be able to just gather and pray. Maybe you can just catch a friend or somebody that's with you to just turn to them while everybody else is singing. You turn to them and say, I need to tell you what God said to me in the past couple of hours. And just say it to them. Honestly, it could have been on the way to church. It could have been during the worship time or it could have been in this teaching time. But what is God saying to you today? Don't be afraid to tell somebody else that. So the steps will be open to pray. There'll be people gathered around singing. But for you, what's your response to this? What are you going to do with it? And if you've never come to know Christ, I'm going to hang around here. There'll be other folks that'll be here. Catch the person that invited you. They probably invited you for a sneaky reason. They wanted you to know Jesus. Okay, let me just go ahead and out them. Okay? They wanted you to know the God that they know and the forgiveness that they've experienced. So why don't you just catch them and to say, hey, I need to know God. Help me know what to do the next step. Fair enough? Let's respond to God as he calls us to, whether it's praying here, talking to each other about what God's saying, saying to a friend, I need to know more about Jesus, or just taking the next step with God. Fair enough? Let's stand and let's worship together. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com.